Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This is Ion Veterans Weekend, a roundup of the week's most important stories affecting those who served. Presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. There are nearly 20 million, 20 million military, military veterans, veterans in, in the, the U.S. US. Each week, we focus on their stories. Powered by ConnectingVets.com. This, this is CBS Ion Veterans. Ion Veterans. Welcome to another edition of CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs. This hour we'll talk coronavirus conspiracy theories with two veterans that are infectious disease experts. It's pretty easy to buy into the idea of some of these conspiracy theories. The central component being that, in fact, things are not out of control. So my own personal feeling is you don't need the mask when you're in that environment. Science, sensationalism, and what we should really be doing this summer. The American Coronavirus Crisis. Yes, now in its 12th or 13th week, I've almost lost track. Are we near the end? How do we begin again? Well, this hour we're going to meet two veterans and experts in infectious disease. One led scientists at one of the nation's most dangerous workplaces, the Institute of Infectious Disease Research at Fort Detrick, Maryland. And the other one, I'm on the phone with right now, Major Nathan Fisher from the world's greatest U.S. Army. Major, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Really good, Nate. And uh, again, thank you for taking the time to uh, sit down with me. I follow you on Facebook. We know each other from the neighborhood and from other circles. And uh, it's just really great when somebody reminded me to reach out to you because you are, in fact, uh, an expert in this kind of stuff about microbiology and immunology. Share with me a little bit about your academic background uh, because it's really impressive. Well, I did my uh, PhD research at the University of Michigan. I studied anthrax, infamous uh, anthrax disease. 
Uh, from, the, from there, I went to uh, the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases, uh, where I was a principal investigator and scientist studying anthrax, tularemia, and a few other um, bacterial diseases. Uh, from there, I moved on to the Department of Homeland Security, where I worked in microbial genomics and bacteriology. And as impressive as it sounds, I'm not going to lie when I say some of the words go right over my head. I'm that guy that understands about half of what you say sometimes, but I do understand this, that you've been on the front lines of dealing with the very things that scare us today with this coronavirus. So let's start with where do you think we are right now with the way a coronavirus pandemic plays out? Well, it's really encouraging to see the, the trend of new cases and, and fatalities trending downwards. Um, so I think that's encouraging. You know, there are some states that are still seeing steady numbers or even increases. Uh, so that's something to be watchful for. Um, but the overall trend is, is, is downward. Uh, and I think that's a, a very positive thing um, that might tell us that uh, the uh, pandemic will uh, ease a little bit uh, for the summer months. Uh, we just have to stay vigilant, though, with social distancing, uh, mask wearing, uh, and, you know, see what the fall brings. Is this normal? Is this what we should be expecting? Is this, do you think, what the rest of the world is kind of experiencing that started before we did, that, like, these things flare up, and then you have to do what it takes to mitigate it, and then eventually, yes, it does die down, if not dissipate completely? Well, it certainly is. Um, what the rest of the world is experiencing, absolutely. So the first part of that question is right on. Uh, we're definitely not alone. Um, the, the second half of the question, will it sort of dissipate? It won't dissipate on its own. That's important to realize. The, the dissipation and the downward trend that we're seeing is due to the public health measures that have been put in place. So this virus will continue to spread uh, if left unchecked. So that's important to realize. Okay. And that leads me to some of the Facebook stuff that I've seen and just found damn fascinating. One of your posts is a graphic that reads, what refutes science? Better science. What doesn't refute science? Your feelings, your religion, your favorite politician, your half-baked opinion after watching two YouTube videos. <laughs> and I think one of the videos you're referring to there is the uh, one entitled Plandemic. And it's a movie trailer for a movie apparently coming out this summer. And it uh, in it details how, uh, according to this one female researcher uh, that worked with Dr. Anthony Fauci, that he is secretly holding on to some kind of patent and is waiting for the entire world to come to its knees. And then, of course, he will sell them, uh, you know, the medicine they need based on his patent and become a zillionaire. What's up with that? Well, you know, I think that. So human beings, by nature, we have this tendency to be skeptical, uh, and Americans especially, of authority, and um, couple that with sort of a need to understand or control our surroundings, and it really proves to be fertile ground uh, for conspiracy theorists when we're in the midst of an emergency and a, and a prolonged emergency uh, like, like we're currently in with the pandemic. Um, I think that for a lot of people that maybe have difficulty um, understanding the complexity of infectious disease and pandemic response, or, or maybe not difficulty understanding, but just no prior exposure to that subject matter, 
um, it's pretty easy to buy into the idea um, of some of these conspiracy theories, the central um, component being that, in fact, things are not out of control, uh, but they're they're under control. They're just unfortunately under control of a nefarious actor, you know, and Fauci or the, the WHO, CDC, etc. And so there's a level of comfort when you say, well, things aren't really out of control or unknown. They're, they are known and they're under control by these nefarious actors. And if we can just control them, then we control the situation. Mm, okay. So conspiracy theories like a warm emotional blanket that we can wrap around our brain that helps us feel better about the world because there's a reason all this crap's going on. Huh. All right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What about those that cite that hospitals are taking money for diagnosing patients as COVID or that there's some kind of some kind of money changing hands when a hospital reports it has a positive case? Uh, so I don't currently work in a hospital, so I, I can't speak firsthand uh, about that. But my, my understanding is the amount of money that a hospital receives for COVID-19 is the same amount of money that they receive for admitting anyone with a severe respiratory infection. Um, I think 13000 is like a number that, I, that I've seen around, and, and I've read that in various um, reports. And I, I, my understanding is that's the amount that a hospital gets anytime they admit a patient with a severe respiratory infection, not just COVID-19. They would, I think, make the same amount of money if the diagnosis was some other severe respiratory infection. Hmm. Okay, uh, let me throw another one at you. For this virus to jump ship from the animal kingdom to the human kingdom and start affecting us, it would have taken hundreds, if not you know, a thousand years of evolution. I believe the trailer specifically said, uh, the doctor, what's her name there? Um, Dr. Judy Mikovits, I think was her name, uh, had said it would take 800 years for this virus to make that leap from species. Is that true? Uh, it's certainly a rare event for uh, animal viruses to jump into hum the human population, but it's certainly not exceedingly rare. I mean, it happens uh, regularly. Um, the first SARS virus is, is an example. MERS is an example. Um, Ebola, uh, HIV, all of these came from an animal uh, reservoir somewhere. So it definitely happens, and it's becoming more and more common as the human footprint encroaches into more and more natural areas uh, where these viruses exist. Um, you know, the more contact you have between humans and animals, the more opportunity there is for that rare event to happen. Uh, th this is a, a, an extremely severe pandemic, and I, I, you know, I've heard um, other scientists speak of it in terms of a uh, once in every 500 years or even once in a millennia event that we've had um, a zoonosis, which is an animal disease that jumps into humans uh, of this magnitude uh, happen. So um, it's rare but the idea that it requires 500 or 800 years of evolution is kind of a misunderstanding or misapplication of the concepts of evolution. And might also be a misunderstanding or calculation of the damn calendar, because uh, we've been on Earth for at least 800 <laughs> years. I mean, it's a, not... long, a long, long time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> OK. Now, stick around, because coming up next, we'll talk about masks. Do we need them? Are we going to die without one? That's ahead when CBS Eye on Veterans returns.
Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And all this hour, we're talking coronavirus crisis summer 2020. Right now, we'll jump back into our conversation with Nathan Fisher, who spent 19 years as a microbiologist with the U.S. Army and has gone on to become an assistant professor of infectious disease and public health and currently working as a senior executive with a scientific research firm. I guess the other things I kind of wanted to ask about now are where do we go from here and what is safe? Um, a lot of people have turned this into kind of a political argument, you know, mm-hmm. don't, you know, don't mess with my riots. And uh, to which I saw somebody put on the Facebook thread, you had uh, somebody put up a South Park graphic. They took our game. They took your job. They took your job. Bluebacks are taking our jobs. Um, <laughs> What are we really supposed to think here, man? Is it really safe to say there's one set of rules for phasing in returning to work and returning to normal? Well, I think that there's a sensible set of guidelines that, that we can follow. And, and the CDC just, just published their guidelines um, not very long ago. But I'm definitely a proponent of you know different jurisdictions implementing those guidelines uh, the way that makes sense for them, and and I'm definitely uh, an advocate for you know economic recovery and and rejuvenating uh, economic activity. You know, I think that partly we need to not so much talk about how to go back, but maybe how to uh, rejuvenate economic activity in the situation we're in. What about those though that are saying, okay, well, there's hardly any cases in my area. My state's only got, you know, a handful. I live in Idaho. You know, there's more cows than people here. Why can't I go to church? Why can't I shake a man's hand? Why can't I do something like that? Yeah, sure. So, well, first off, they should definitely follow, you know, the guidance of their local uh, public health experts, which, you know, would be knowledgeable about their particular situations. But yeah, definitely, I think there are regions of the country where the risk is different than than others. And so some things that um, might uh, might not be appropriate in uh, more risky areas is definitely something that they can do if there's there's less risk. And and the other part of that puzzle is the ability to test uh, just to make sure there aren't smoldering cases with, within the population, no matter how rural uh, it may be. And also that the state or, or county has the ability to trace outbreaks should they occur so that if it does happen, they can be quickly controlled. Now, let's talk masks. We've seen so much about what they're for. But then there's the other side that's like, well, it's also stopping people from, you know, uh, sneeze clouds and cough missiles from hitting me in the face three aisles over in the grocery store. Um, where are we with masks? Absolutely necessary at this point? Or should only so, those that are truly concerned with infecting or around a family member that has a compromised immune system, should only those people be concerned with wearing them? Well, so... You definitely hit on a, a key idea there with the um, surgical mask. The, the reason the, the surgeon wears it is to protect the patient from him. So it's the same with uh, masks related to COVID-19. The reason why I wear a mask is to protect other people that I'm around, not to protect myself. Uh, so with that in mind, if you're in a public space, you never know, you know the immune status of those around you. Uh, so as a courtesy, as a um, 
we're in it together kind of attitude. I think it's good practice. Uh, makes sense scientifically. Um, masks do not block a hundred percent of the sneeze or cough particles, or even just breathing and talking. Uh, small micro particles that are um, uh, expelled from from our mouth and nose, uh, but it does block a reasonable percentage, especially those high velocity ones that you know you really don't want to get smacked with in the face, right? Uh, But in order to really satisfy that requirement then so that we could be mask free, then on the flip side of that coin, isn't it that, well, then everyone in America should be tested. But I don't think we could do that if we wanted to. I agree with you. I I don't know that we could do that. The logistics and the economic um, requirements to test everyone in America um, would be difficult, uh, to say the least. So then in the meantime, since we don't have universal testing, maybe just a mask as a show of good faith that you ain't trying to breathe your nastiness on other people is just a way to make everybody (laughs) feel happier. Okay. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about masks on the beach. We talked about the beach earlier, and of course, thousands of people are flocking outside now. But then there's people that are like yelling at each other saying, you know, well, wear your mask or you can't be this close to me on the beach boardwalk. Is it cool to go outside and not wear a mask as long as I'm not all up in somebody else's face? Yeah, I think, you know, if you're, if you're keeping a distance from everyone, um, then I think that's appropriate. So my wife and I go on a, a, a walk every evening, um, and we don't come within six feet of anybody, so we generally don't wear masks. Now, if we're going to stop at a convenience store down the street uh, or anywhere else, and we have the masks with us, and, and we throw them on for, for that situation. But just out for a stroll, not next to someone, um, we don't wear masks. So it's definitely, you know, the masks are for when the six-foot and greater distance is, is not possible. And, yeah, I, I agree with you. I totally uh, sympathize with folks that want to get out. They want to be in the, the outdoors, fresh air. What do you think it's going to take for us to see life get back to normal. We'll always have coronavirus until we find something that kills it and eradicates it. So what's an acceptable threshold of sickness in the country for us to realize that we just got to wash our hands and say our prayers because Jesus and germs are everywhere. Yeah, that's, that's a really complicated question. Uh, and I think it's something that, you know, each individual needs, needs to grapple with. I, I will say that the you know, we, we don't know what the true case fatality rate of COVID-19 is. Um, it's extremely difficult to measure an accurate case fatality rate in the midst of a pandemic, which, which we now are. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of, uh, of that. So during the first SARS outbreak back in 2003, the estimates for the case fatality rate were generally between three and four. And then after the, the outbreak, all the data came in. Turns out that the case fatality rate was actually 9.6. So, you know, Damn. I kind of tracked the numbers that are associated with COVID-19, and, and you see numbers all over the place, from less than 1% all the way to over 10%. But my non-scientific hunch is, you know, probably somewhere upwards of 5 closer to 10%. Um, case fatality rate. So that means if you get it, you probably have uh, 10%, maybe a little lower than 10% chance of, of death. It's not 
a risk that most people want to take on lightly. And so that means that in order to return to a life that feels more normal, uh, as opposed to quarantine life, uh, we need to understand those risks and we need to have widespread buy-in temporarily, at least until, like you said, a vaccine is available. So not a magic number, just a certain set of circumstances. Like once we see a fewer amount of sick people, then maybe yeah. it'll be cool to start yeah. taking down the plastic barriers between me and the cash register. Or are you saying that maybe those plastic barriers need to be existing for the future? So these, these are really complicated societal questions, but I think that I'm not offended by the plastic barrier. I, I don't, uh, you know, I understand its purpose. I, I get it. I think that as we live with this pandemic longer, I think more and more people will kind of understand that, okay, that that makes good sense given this world that we're living in where there are uh, viruses that can jump from animals and, and cause pandemics like this in a matter of months. This it wasn't the first. It won't be the last. Uh, I think one of the real lessons here is that we need to think seriously about our pandemic response plans and just making sure that we have, you know, the, the materials, um, stockpiles of respirators, of, of all sorts of medical protective equipment uh, that are going to be necessary in these kinds of situations, uh, that we have surge hospital space, that we build our health systems um, with that possibility in mind. Uh, I think that those sorts of things are how we get to more of a normal uh, and definitely how we get to a fully functioning economy again. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, as we continue our conversation about the coronavirus crisis in America, we're speaking with veterans who are also experts in the world of infectious disease. Earlier this week, I had a chance to speak with a renowned expert in the field and author, retired Army Colonel Dr. Mark Cordepeter. All right, Colonel, how you doing? Great. How are you doing? Really well. And I am excited to talk to you. Um, I think I probably could have enjoyed this conversation any single week since about mid-March because your background is fascinating and as a leading biodefense expert and uh, a physician, and I think that we're going to gain a lot from talking to you. So first, if I could, um, share with me a little bit about your background. Sure. I am an infectious disease and public health physician, and um, I've spent 27 years in the Army taking care of patients. Uh, working in the laboratory, running a health department, and some overseas deployments as well. I deployed once to Bosnia for nine months as the chief of preventive medicine for the U.S. forces. I also deployed to Kuwait for the beginning of the Operation Iraqi Freedom on a special response team, arraying various countermeasures across the uh, battlefields. My career spanned really the hospital, the laboratory, the lecture hall, the corner office, as well as the field environment. And that is such a wide variety of professional disciplines. And I think we're going to draw on all of them today as we talk about this COVID-19 era and uh, this, this next phase that we're entering. 
Quickly, share with me a little bit about your experience with infectious diseases, because I know that you were at Fort Detrick, Maryland. It has popped up often in the discussion of COVID-19, and uh, you worked at a place called USAMRID, or the, correct me if I'm wrong here, United States Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases. Did I get that right? That's correct. Yes, uh, we call it USAMRID, of course, uh, the acronym, but uh, we'll also we affectionately know it as the quote-unquote the hot zone uh, because of the fact that we work with, you know, sort of various so-called hot agents, uh, you know, various highly deadly uh, severe disease agents uh, like Ebola, Marburg, anthrax, things like that. And we thank you for all of that because I think until just this last year, I probably am like a majority of Americans in that I didn't really think much about what the public health department did for me. I didn't really think much about what infectious disease scientists and physicians and doctors and researchers are doing every day. Uh, Of course, you wrote a book called Inside the Hot Zone. In that book, you kind of chronicle sort of the goings on inside Fort Detrick, Maryland, and you were there when you dealt with Ebola and anthrax. I like to say it's it's for, you know, anthrax to Ebola and everything in between. Really, this, the book is about various crises I dealt with. That's the, the major part of the book is different chapters of different crises. And they were things like, yeah, so uh, I was there for the 2001 anthrax attacks, dealing with the medical aspects of managing our personnel who may have been exposed to these letters coming into the institute where they're being evaluated in the labs. So I'd like to say the book is, it's a real-life medical thriller. And actually, I wrote it that way, such that it's actually, uh, at least the, ch- the, uh, the chapters where there are crises are written sort of from my vo- point of view as things unfold. So the reader really doesn't know what's going to happen. It's like a medical mystery, a little bit medical thriller, you know, taking you blow by blow with a seat at the table and learning things as I learn about them. And then in between chapters, to try to reduce some of the tension, there's, there's actually educational aspects about what's a bioweapon, uh, how, how might these be employed, what are the ways we prevent them, how do diseases spread, what, you know, sort of what's the future coming. Man, that's fascinating stuff, and I can tell you by having been a former resident of Frederick, Maryland, I lived right across the street from that base, and I was always, I mean, you know the rumors that go around. There's always the, oh, they're burning monkeys on that base. Or, you know, if it if the wind's blowing just right, you just might get some, uh, you just might get a little Ebola in your backyard. But where you worked was, in fact, these kind of like vacuum chambered glass enclosed laboratories where everyone's wearing like the white suits and the personal protective face masks and the gloves and everything. And... How likely is it, how often was it that something hot got from chamber one to the decontamination station to possibly on a manila envelope and then walked outside the building? Well, so I I actually recently wrote an article uh, for Forbes. I'm actually a contributor to Forbes Coronavirus Frontline. So I've written a series of articles because there was these rumors about the lab in Wuhan. So there are four different ways something actually can get out of the laboratory. So one is, okay, if you know, there are, as you said, these these uh, laboratories are under negative pressure isolation, so they essentially suck air in to try to prevent anything from getting out of the lab. And then the air, of course, goes into the laboratory and then goes out through HEPA filters and then out of the building, right? So, so something potentially, theoretically, could go out through an aerosol 
through one of these smokestacks if someone didn't put a HEPA filter in, in, in place. But in most cases, there's at least one HEPA filter. In some cases, there's two HEPA filters in series. So that, that would be a huge egregious area, and I don't think it would happen at all. Uh, the second really is somebody who's working in the laboratory, if they had an exposure to whatever they were working on, that was a needle stick or some type of, type of aerosol exposure, then they could potentially get ill. And if it's something that's transmissible from one person to another, after they get ill, they could transmit it. So that's one way something could get out. And the third method of something getting out of lab would be hitching a ride on an animal. So if you had an infected animal, uh, and that's kind of something out of the movies, really, or something that like a fomite, which is an inanimate object, like uh, some laboratory equipment moving out of the lab or some lab samples or something like that. Uh, or even on someone's hair, let's say something gets splashed in their hair. So, but there are ways we prevent that. And then the fourth is obviously what everybody thinks about in the movies is somebody deliberately releasing something or stealing something. Fascinating to hear you talk about the four ways, because I know that, you know, here, week eight, week nine of this global pandemic, the conspiracy theorists are alive and well. And there was the video that went around that said that uh, some were certain that that this COVID-19 was created in a lab and was probably leaked from either Dietrich or the lab in Wuhan, China. Do you suspect that that is something that the world should be worried about, that there was a nefarious individual in a laboratory in Asia or in Europe that decided to, you know, slip the Petri dish in their trench coat and, 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 and unleash this havoc on the world? Or are you of the school of thought that this probably is more biological in nature and, and, and jumped from an animal species to, you know, to us? Well, um, there's a couple things to consider. So, obviously, coronaviruses circulate in nature, and there are lots of coronaviruses we know in southern China. And, um, you know, that laboratory was certainly working on coronaviruses, and for probably good reason. They were sort of that part of the world was the, the uh, where our SARS started. So, obviously, they have a uh, interest in understanding how to prevent it. Um, I can't say one way or another whether, you know, certainly they were working and manipulating these viruses. Now, it's all about what's your perception of the intent of that work. Was it because they were trying to develop vaccines and understand how these things, the pathogenesis of the disease and what the real risk is? Or is it because they were trying to manipulate these for nefarious purposes? I can't make a statement one way or another about that. I can only say, yes, they were working on coronaviruses. Is it possible that something came out of the laboratory? Possibly. Some of this, uh, it depends on your viewpoint. Uh, and, you know, we've seen an article in Nature that talks about, well, there's no way this could have been manufactured. It, you know, follows the normal progression of coronaviruses. And then there's some more re recent reports about this infects uh, human cells preferentially to to uh, even the bat cells or pangolin cells or things like that. And so clearly that's evidence it was manipulated through serial passage in human cells. I don't, I'm not a genetic, you know, viral geneticist. And uh, so I'm not probably the right person to ask. I think that certainly um, the most likely scenario is that this actually was a natural infection that occurred in the population. It was a natural spillover event. But I'm also... Uh, having worked in the defense world and know that bad people do bad things for various reasons, uh, never hurts to just be aware of that possibility. But right now, I'm not sure, we may can talk about this further, but how we're, how we're actually going to solve this puzzle. We may never solve the puzzle. 
uh, anyway, so that's yeah. that's kind of my thoughts on it. It's a, it's a possibility. I think uh, there are other spillover events that hurt, happen all the time. So I think nature and Mother Nature is a very efficient bioterrorist, and she creates things that we're not ready for. And this may be just one of those. So where do we go from here? Well, we'll be back with the answer to that with Dr. Mark Cordepeter when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Now, all this hour, we've been talking with veterans who are also experts on infectious disease. And yes, the coronavirus. And in my conversation with Dr. Mark Cordepeter, he's shut down the conspiracy theories floating around on the Internet and even said that it's Mother Nature that sometimes can be a nasty bioterrorist herself. So as this COVID crap continues to hang around, I asked him to help me determine where do we go from here based on science, not on sensationalism. Obviously, 9, 10, 12 weeks into this, depending on where you live, um, and people are calling for the reopening of businesses, and we want to get back to our normal lives, but then now we're in this weird sort of world where people have made some rules, CDC has laid down some guidance, and we're all trying to interpret it as best we can. And you've got areas where masks are absolutely mandatory. And then you've got other areas, uh, maybe West Virginia, where they're lifting the restrictions and they're at kind of like the final phase because they didn't have a whole lot of cases to begin with. Where are we on masks? Is the mask for me to not breathe in your COVID nastiness or is the mask to prevent me from breathing on you? Well, it's going to depend on the mask and uh, where where you're wearing it, why. So uh, certain masks, if you think about medical masks, an N95 mask is designed to reduce the numbers of particles coming into you as you breathe. So that's really primarily protecting you. Uh, if you're wearing a surgical mask, those are designed really for, you know, it, for the surgeon who's operating on a patient's open belly to try to reduce the fact that they're spitting into their abdomen while it's open to try to reduce infection that way. Okay. Uh, if you're wearing, and, and so in some ways, you could say then if you're wearing a surgical mask, you're primarily wearing it to try to reduce spread to others. Uh, and then same thing with a cloth mask. It's probably more effective in reducing spread to others. But but I will say, you know, what any of these masks do is, you know, if you think about there's, you know, different size droplets that someone, you know, expels, whether they're talking, singing, coughing, sneezing. sneezing. And, uh, and so you think about, maybe two types here where, you know, sort of someone sneezes or cough, they're sending like a ballistic missile straight at you. So it's like you have these ballistic particles coming right at you. So something, you know, any kind of barrier is going to reduce the number that come right into your mouth or nose, right? May not prevent your eyes. So that's, that's where your eyes are vulnerable. Uh, and then there's going to be some smaller particles that maybe hang around the air a little bit more, and then catch the air airwaves and things like that. And those are then the ones that may come around something like a surgical mask or one of these cloth masks. Uh, they're probably less likely to get through an N95 if you're wearing it properly, you don't have a beard and things like that. Right. You have holes around. But, but uh, so essentially you're, uh, you know, there's probably some reduction with a cloth mask and, um, or surgical mask in some of the particles you're getting into your nose and mouth just because of that ballistic reduction. And then things have to be small enough and still survive in the air long enough to get around that mask to your nose and mouth. Okay. Uh, but, but you're also preventing some of the spread to others. So it, it depends. So you think about it, 
your nose and mouth are most vulnerable. Why? Because they're essentially serving as a vacuum to suck particles in. Every time you breathe, you're pulling those particles in from the atmosphere, whereas your eyes are just sort of static. So it's more like random motion, whether something hits, unless someone coughs directly at you or sneezes. So okay. uh, different vulnerabilities. So suffice to say, masks, a good idea inside stores where it is crowded or where we are coming close to people or walking by people that could have just coughed, sneezed or spoken and otherwise emitted some kind of droplets. Yes, I would say that. I've always believed uh, from day one that that's that's the highest risk environment. And we saw this with the cruise ships. We've seen it with nursing homes. We've seen it with meatpacking places, anywhere people are crowded together. My thought is it's better to wear a mask than not. Uh, outdoors, I'm not as worried. We know that viruses in general don't survive as well in the in the in the light and outdoors. And there's you know things dissipate. You know the air dissipates a lot faster outside. So you're certainly at less risk outside. It's all about risk. So your risk is higher indoors with other people than you are outside. Let's get to that. You touched on being outside. Um, I'm seeing pictures of Memorial Day weekend and folks having gone to the beach and there's some people wearing masks and other people not wearing masks. Um, I see people walking around outside on hiking and biking trails and they're all masked up. Um, Isn't some fresh air and light good for us? And are we still at risk if we're sitting on a beach and 200 yards away is an asymptomatic person? I mean, do I got to wear the mask outside at the beach? I don't like to use the word safe or not safe. I like to talk about risk. So it's a matter of reducing risk. You have less risk outdoors, especially at a place like the beach where it's hot, where viruses don't survive. And there's a wind blowing, so it's going to dissipate the, the uh, particles in the air. So people go to the beach. Usually they're congregating in their family or friend groups. So they're in a smaller group. So, you know, and they're not, not usually all sitting in a, you know, crowd together. They're usually spaced in some kind of fashion. So I think your risk at a place like the beach or out walking around hiking is far lower. So my own personal feeling is you don't need the mask when you're in that environment. Now, if I get up and I want to go get a drink at the concession stand, there's a bunch of people crowded there. I might put my mask on while I'm standing in line there. Then I come back to my family and I probably remove the mask uh, and maybe try to use some kind of hand gel on my hands and then I'd have my drink. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's a matter of um, sort of thinking about these areas as potential risk areas. You know, is this a higher risk? Okay, maybe I put my mask on there. Lower risk, I probably don't need it. And actually, uh, I'll also just Mentioned, I, I wrote an article recently for Forbes kind of on this, how you can use some of the lessons from a containment laboratory to maneuver around and reduce risk as you as things open up. And so that's something that if anybody's interested in, they can find that, on the again, on the Forbes uh, coronavirus frontline. And I think this is where, as places do open, it's useful to think about how science can guide us that way. And I think one of these things is, yeah, we know virus doesn't survive as well outdoors as it does indoors. And so uh, these are the places we should be able to open up earlier uh, than later. All right. So good to hear that because I know that, you know, as we're doing our best, we end up, you know, as human beings do, making our own rules and trying to make rules that universally apply, even though this is not a universal situation. And, you know, I saw the people on the beaches the other day that uh, there were the rules that said, um, the beach for exercise only. You can be on the beach as long as you're moving. Fishing is permitted as long as you're not seated. (laughs) 
do we oftentimes as human beings in an attempt to mitigate risk end up making some pretty arbitrary rules that come across as maybe lacking science and almost kind of dumb? I think I think that's the challenge is that everybody's kind of interpreting this on their own. I think this is where, you know, you can make certain rules, but then everybody kind of uh, applies it the way they want to. And um, I don't think that's helpful because I think it does it does cause us to do things that are probably overkill. Uh, and then we and then in some ways, then we don't do the things we really need to do. So th- there is that risk. And then in the end. You're, you're just making rules and uh, causing more inconvenience than maybe is necessary uh, to try to protect people. And I think we'll leave it right there. Doc, always great to hear from you. Great to hear from an Army veteran. And I can't thank you enough for your service and for everything that you've done. The book is called Inside the Hot Zone. You can get it everywhere that you find books. Retired U.S. Army Colonel Mark Cordepeter, a physician, scientist, and leading biodefense expert. I can't thank you enough for coming on the show, man. Thanks, Phil. It's been great talking to you. Eye on Veterans Weekend has been presented by University of Maryland Global Campus. Choose from 90-plus programs and specializations to accelerate your military or civilian career and find out how our dedicated military and veteran advisors can help you navigate your benefits to save you time and money. University of Maryland Global Campus. Find out how we're made for you. Visit umgc.edu. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to Eye on Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts.